Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Good morning. Welcome, everybody. My name is Tom Powers. I'm the head curator of Sundance Now Doc Club. I'm pleased to see you all here in the morning. Uh, this is the second of three panels that Doc Club uh, is doing here at Sundance TV headquarters. I want to thank Sundance TV headquarters and all the staff here. Uh, want to put in a plug for our final panel, our third and final panel, is happening on Wednesday at 1 p.m. Uh, it's called Documenting Celebrity. We have the filmmakers behind the uh, Norman Lear film uh, that was opening night at Sundance and uh, the Maplethorpe film, uh, which I think played yesterday. So if you're still in town on Wednesday, please come here at 1 o'clock. Uh, Sundance Now Doc, how many people here don't really know what Sundance Now Doc Club is? Fair, it's not, not a trick question. Uh, uh, well, uh, thank you for being here. If you want to know more about Sundance Now Doc Club, please visit uh, one of the people in the front room after the panel with the Doc Club t-shirt. Uh, Sundance Now Doc Club is a subscription streaming site dedicated to documentary film. We have hundreds of documentary uh, films on the site, including Oscar-winning documentaries and documentaries that uh, would be real discoveries to you. Uh, I curate the site along with guest curators like Ira Glass and Susan Sarandon. Uh, and other great folks, Laurie Anderson just did one, who come in and pick some of their favorite films. So, you know, one of the frustrations that some of us have on uh, digital platforms is you, you go in and there's like a warehouse of a thousand films and you're just trying to figure out what to watch and, uh, and it can be uh, a process. Uh, well, we try to make that process a little bit easier by having people who uh, maybe share your tastes uh, point out the things that they like. Uh, so, as part of uh, Sundance Now Doc Club has now been going for three or four years, and we've been doing panels uh, here at Sundance for uh, for three or four years. And last year we did a panel which uh, kind of kicked off what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Last year we did a panel about short form documentary making, which uh, I think anyone who pays attention to this space knows that we're uh, going through an incredible renaissance of of short film documentary. Used to be, you know, just five years ago, if you made a short documentary, there really wasn't any place for it. You know, you, it might play at a film festival, and uh, and then not, you know, not so much more you could do with it. Uh, today, there's lots of uh, new, very interesting initiatives happening around uh, short form documentary. So that's what we were trying to look at last year. And one of our panelists last year was uh, Eugene Jarecki, uh, a great filmmaker who's had lots of films at uh, Sundance. Uh, including Why We Fight and uh, House, uh, House I Live In. And uh, Eugene was talking about his experience. He has spent all, these all his time making long-form documentaries, putting a lot of resources and sometimes spending years on them. 
and then uh, shortly after the 2008 uh, economic uh, collapse, he, he had an idea. He just wanted to get a message out. He had uh, something on his mind, and so he, he made this short documentary called Move Your Money. Uh, and the concept behind that documentary was, you know, if, if we really feel suspect of these big banks, why don't we move our money into smaller institutions, the, you know, the kind of uh, small-town institutions, that uh, economic institutions that are, are glorified in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, Eugene was having these thoughts around Christmas time, so It's a Wonderful Life was on his mind. So he made this short documentary uh, called Move Your Money, and... Uh, and it went viral, and he was on the Stephen Colbert show, and, uh, and he realized that in the four days it took him to make this short documentary, he had reached more people and had more impact than he had spending three years on, uh, on a feature film that, uh, that he was then making. Uh, and and uh, you know, that really clicked for him, and I had heard Eugene tell that story before, and it really clicked for me. And it clicked for someone else who was sitting in the audience uh, a year ago, and that is Josh Sapan, the head of AMC Networks. Uh, and after Sundance, Josh called a meeting at AMC Networks and said, you know, this, this really strikes me, what's happening in, in short film. And uh, Josh described it as the new editorial page. He thought that, that sh uh, short film documentaries were the new editorial page, and it was a new way of receiving information uh, today. It was a kind of format uh, for the age and a really important um, and interesting alternative to what we mainly see on, uh, on uh, cable TV news shows, which, you know, which are like these scream fests of you know, pundits uh, trying to ratchet up the, the rhetoric, talking to each other. And, and sometimes what gets lost uh, in, um, in those debates are the voices of real people uh, that, are, that are affected by these, uh, by these issues. So uh, Josh put together a team uh, at, uh, at Sundance Now Doc Club, uh, including executive producer Joyce Deep, who oversaw this whole uh, program. And, uh, yeah, and Joyce is here. Uh, where is Joyce? There she is. Um, thank you, Joyce. And said, what, uh, what can we do to, uh, to do something interesting in the short form space? Particularly, we were having this conversation last uh, uh, some spring or summer, and, and we knew that the election was coming up in 2016, and and we wanted to be uh, uh, doing some things that could uh, start conversations during election season. Uh, so we put out a call of submissions to some of our favorite uh, filmmakers. Uh, we reached out to about 50 filmmakers, maybe 30 or so uh, got back to us, and and we said to filmmakers, look, we you know we don't want to make this elaborate for you, just send us a paragraph or two of something that's on your mind that you think could be a conversation starter during election uh, season. Um, and, and so we got back these uh, submissions and got a lot of very interesting things. And, uh, and something that really emerged from these, because we weren't really telling people more than that, just give us something that's a conversation starter. There were a real cluster of, of pieces that kind of broadly, thematically, fell under um, the, the idea of justice in America, and coming at justice from um, many different angles. But we thought that was an interesting group. We had this idea that we wanted to do five. We called the program Take Five, which uh, in, in a way means we're gonna, you know, each of these pieces are about five minutes long, and we're going to give five different takes uh, on this broader concept of, uh, of justice in America. So we uh, sent out these filmmakers, uh, you know, gave them 
some resources to, uh, to co-produce their uh, ideas. They've been working on them uh, in the fall, and really these pieces have just come together like in the last week, uh, finishing touches have been made on them. So we are really pleased uh, today to, uh, to give you a, a, a sneak preview of some of this. We're going to show you a little bit of, um, of each one. We're going to talk to the filmmakers. You're the first people who have seen any of this. The, the pieces will uh, be released uh, uh, soon, in the coming uh, weeks, um, to... Uh, uh, and, and again, we, you know, we were really thinking about the, these pieces as uh, injecting ideas into uh, the election season. So this is our, uh, you're our test audience, um, and, uh, and we're really pleased to have you here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring up uh, each uh, filmmaking team uh, one by one. They're going to say a couple words uh, about their, um, their piece, and then we'll watch about a one-minute clip of, uh, of these pieces. So... Uh, before I bring the, the first team uh, to stage, so the first clip is called, um, for a short film, it's called A Hug from Paul Ryan. Uh, and I have to say, when we were going through our 30 or so submissions, just the title, A Hug from Paul Ryan, uh, stood out to us. Um, uh, like, we wanted to know what that uh, was about. The, uh, the, the filmmaking team, uh, Sheena Joyce and Don Argett, are uh, no strangers to Sundance. They uh, work here in, uh, what do my notes say, in 2005 with their film Rock School, uh, terrific, uh, uh, very funny uh, documentary. Uh, they've been back with Atomic States of America in 2012. Uh, the, among their other films is The Art of the Steel, which I showed at the Toronto International Film Festival uh, in 2009. Uh, they're, they're here today with their latest production, their two-year-old daughter, Maeve, uh, back there. Um, and, uh, and it's my great pleasure to uh, bring them to the stage to talk about A Hug for Paul Ryan. Please welcome Sheena Joyce and Don Arga. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you, thank you Tom and, and Joyce and Josh and everyone here for having us. So. As you said, the film is called A Hug from Paul Ryan, and we follow a woman named Tiana Gaines-Turner, who is the only person living in poverty who was permitted to testify before Paul Ryan's 2014 House Budget Committee on the War on Poverty. And we follow her a year later to see what has changed. Enjoy. <laughs> uh, all right, let's watch this one-minute clip from A Hug from Paul Ryan. I've been hungry. I live in poverty. I feel like I'm constantly always jumping over a hurdle every day. Okay, so we didn't get to pay all the electric bill. So this is how much we have left. So we had to put $50 on the electric, and then we had to put $50 on this, and then we have to see if maybe we can just squeeze out just a little bit to get the basics. This is $25.84. Might not be much to a lot of people, but it's a lifesaver for us right now. I don't want anybody to say, you know, oh, well, you know, she's on food stamps and she gets this and she gets that, so why can't they get ahead? It's not that easy.
She's a terrific character, and uh, a little bit later we'll bring all the filmmakers up and we'll talk uh, more individually about these films. Uh, but let me uh, introduce the next film. The next uh, film is called Who Will Survive in America? It is about the uh, ease of access to guns uh, in America. The director, uh, Sheldon Candace, was uh, here at Sundance with a fiction feature called Love, L-U-V, in uh, 2012. Uh, he's, uh, he's made a lot of short-form documentaries, including The Dwelling, which is about homeless men in Japan. Uh, uh, recently, he did a, a series of spots for Under Armour with the uh, ballerina Misty Copeland, who will come up later in this conversation. Uh, it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome from California, Sheldon Candace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much, everybody who comes out who truly loves America. I really, really appreciate it. I got to say, y'all played that Justin Bieber. I mean, they got me pumped up. You know me. Anyway. <laughs> um, I just have to say, like, seriously, uh, give a shout-out to my mom and my grandmother. Came all the way from Statesville, North Carolina. Um, you know, for me, I just, I'm really, really passionate about this idea, and I feel that what happens in our world nowadays is another tragedy happens in America. And people immediately run to social media, Facebook, Twitter, and they say how bad it is. But how many people actually do something? And I feel that through my gift that, that God has given me, I just wanted to make a film and say something. So, so uh, before I introduce this clip, I, you know, I want to say that uh, one of the ideas behind uh, Take 5 is to really let filmmakers do their own thing in their own style. There's not uh, a house style for, for Take 5. And, and uh, Sheldon uh, really ran with that uh, concept. You, uh, Sheldon did a kind of, I guess you could call it first-person uh, piece, but uh, let's look a little of it. Uh, here is Who Will Survive in America. Roll that clip. I am an American, but I just don't understand my country's love affair with guns. I mean, come on, hunting is an American pastime. Guns have always been a part of our culture. America has a unique relationship with guns to say the least. Many in this country believe that owning a gun is a birthright. The Second Amendment of our Bill of Rights. Utterly unique document. And they had it because those wise old dead white guys that invented the United States. My father always had this rifle real handy just to keep us safe. You know, the right to bear arms is because that's the last form of defense against tyranny. Are we that afraid? Should I get a gun? Our third filmmaker, uh, her film is called The New Fight for Voting Rights. Uh, this filmmaker, Rachel Lears, uh, made the film uh, The Hand That Feeds, a really terrific film about a, uh, a group of, um, of immigrant workers trying to organize, uh, uh, to unionize at a hot and crusty uh, bakery shop on the Upper East Side 
of Manhattan. This film won awards at the Full Frame Festival, the Doc NYC Festival. Uh, it really, that film really showed um, her perseverance and, uh, and real compassion for subjects. Um, so it's my great pleasure to welcome the stage, Rachel Lears. Thanks so much. Uh, it's so great to be here. Thank you to everyone who made this project possible. Tom, Joyce, Marcus, Josh, everybody. So um, my film, The New Fight for Voting Rights, is about the struggle uh, for voting rights and against voter suppression in North Carolina, where uh, one of the most restrictive voting laws in the country was just passed in 2013, right after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. And so let's watch uh, some of that. The new voting, uh, what is it? The new, <laughs> new, new fight for voting rights. Here it is. It was there. Jim Crow we had do's and don't. Our house got burned down twice. You were fearful back then. After the voting right came in, the black people wasn't as fearful. It was somewhat like we had help. Seemed like help was there then for us. I have worked across the South registering people to vote, and it seems that everywhere I went there was trouble. Today, it's almost like deja vu all over again, because here we are, 2015, and we're fighting battles that we fought 20, 30, 40 years ago. The question we should be asking is how can we get more people to vote? Our fourth film is called Limbo. It is about uh, bail in America. Uh, the filmmaker, Razan Galaini, right? I told you I'd screwed up. Um, uh, let me try one more time. Razan Galaini, right? All right. Um, she has a, uh, another short film here at Sundance, am I right? A film called Entrapped. What, what program is it playing in? Short program five. Go check out uh, Entrapped. Uh, a few years ago at Sundance, in uh, uh, well, just uh, two years ago at Sundance, uh, the film We Are Giant, which was about nonviolent resistance uh, around the world. Uh, Razan was a co-producer and field director on that film. Uh, we're very pleased to have her with us today for her film Limbo. Please welcome Razan Galliani. I guess my film is called Limbo, and it's about people who are in jail waiting for trial but couldn't make their bail. And uh, surprisingly, a lot of them is really funny. <laughs> so hope you like it. Let's watch a little clip from Limbo. I believe that everything happens for a reason, so I may have not known the reason while I was in here. Only God knows. I was hot, 
It was very scary, and uh, I didn't know what kind of people I was being around. The situation I'm in right now, I don't really want to say too much on it, but it's a nerve-wracking situation. My bill is $2,000. My bill is sitting at $700, and I can't afford it to get it. Like they say, you're innocent until proven guilty, but it felt like I was guilty until proven innocent. And our last film uh, is called Degentrify America. The filmmaker is Nelson George. Uh, Nelson can't be with us today. He's in Vancouver shooting a feature film. But uh, Nelson has a very distinguished career, both as an author and as a filmmaker. Among his filmmaking credits, he was producer of Chris Rock's film Good Hair that was at Sundance uh, several years ago. This year, he directed uh, Ballerina's Tale about the ballerina Misty Copeland. Um, and uh, another film of his that I think maybe informs a little bit uh, his new work, he made a terrific film called Brooklyn Boheme, which is uh, about the artistic renaissance that, uh, that was taking place in Brooklyn in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, Nelson is a lifelong resident of Brooklyn, and in this film, he looks at Crown Heights and the process of gentrification uh, going on and really focuses on uh, one woman, Donna Mossman, who founded a group called the Crown Heights Tenant Union. So let's look at a little bit of Degentrify America. My name is Donnie Yvette Mossman, and I've lived in Crown Heights for 38 years. We lived in a rent-controlled apartment in the 70s, and the same thing happened. The landlord refused to do repairs. And I remember the day there was water coming out of the living room wall, and my mother looked at me and said, baby, it's time to go. And they redid that building, and we were not allowed to move back in. And I vowed that day that that would never happen to us again. You can buy and sell. You have that right in this country. You can. But what happens to the tenants? This guy goes to a bank to get a loan and says, listen, I have these two buildings. And what he's doing is he's telling the banker, I can charge anywhere from $3,500 to $4,000 a month rent. You'll have your money back. He's not telling that banker, I have to displace those people who are paying $1,000 a month rent or $700 a month rent. He's not telling them that. He comes in, he purchased these buildings. The only way he can pay back that loan is to get us out. That's got to change. All right, we're just going to uh, pull our chairs up, and then I'm going to uh, bring the, the filmmakers up. Uh, so again, you just got a little taste of these. We're going to bring the filmmakers up now and have a longer conversation about how they came at these topics and uh, what it was like uh, making these. And uh, you know, please do stay tuned uh, at Sundance Now Doc Club to for more information about when we're going to be releasing these. Uh, you can also follow our Twitter feed at Doc Club. And uh, believe me, when we're ready to release these, uh, you'll be hearing about it. Uh, so let me bring all the filmmakers to stage, please. Please welcome all our filmmakers.
So we'll do some sharing of microphones. So uh, we, you know, we contacted all of you originally because we admired your other work. Um, and the, the, the brief to you was, hey, we want to do, do a short film starting a conversation. Send us an idea. So I'd love to hear how you guys arrived at your idea. I can start at the end with Sheena and Don. No pressure. So we live, Don and I live in Philadelphia, which of the top 10 major cities is the poorest. And we see, <laughs> so. And we're not just talking about the sports teams. Oh man, Tom, Ooh. you had to go there. Ooh. I even try to censor my language right now, guys. <laughs> Things are brutal, let's put it that way. Sports and otherwise. Um, and we wanted to explore what happens when you live hand to mouth, which so many of us do. I, I mean, even if you think you're doing okay, so many of us are a paycheck away from being in poverty and being officially poor, and not many people want to talk about it. Um, and we're very fortunate to have someone like the character in our film, Tiana Gaines-Turner, who, who is graceful and smart and wants to get beyond the shame um, and perhaps shame our politicians into doing the right thing. And she was so unique to be the only person living in poverty allowed to testify before this, this committee, and so we thought it was a great way to get at the issue by just focusing on one woman's story. Now, so Paul Ryan, to frame this, was uh, the, uh, he was the head of that co uh, committee, the House, uh, what was it? Uh, yeah. Chair of the, uh, the House, House Budget Budget. Committee at the time. Now he's Speaker of the House, yeah. and, uh, and Explain to us where this title, A Hug from Paul Ryan, comes from. So uh, we were fortunate enough, as Sheena said, to, uh, to be in touch with Tiana Gaines-Turner. And she did testify, um, as Sheena said, in 2014. They also had a meeting together after uh, the, the, um, the hearing. And they were able to, you know, just talk one-on-one. -on -one. And out of that, uh, you know, Paul said, you know, thanks so much for being here, you know, went in for a handshake, and she said, no, I want a hug. And luckily there was cameras there that kind of captured this. Uh, but the idea for, and the thing that I think draw, drew us to the story, aside from the topic, was this, this person who had, uh, you know, this, this intimate, one quick, you know, uh, you know time with, with Paul. And for her, it was a big deal because it was like, you're hearing me now, you see me now. I'm not a statistic. I think a lot of times, especially with issues that are difficult like poverty in America, nobody wants to talk about them and everything gets reduced as soon as, you know, you know Philadelphia is the poorest city. What does that mean? You know, that it's just a, it becomes a bunch of stats and numbers that amount to something and, you know, it gets regurgitated as that. But this was something, uh, a real human moment. And we really wanted to kind of like, you know, focus in on that human moment. Uh, that was such a big deal for her, and I don't know how big a deal it was to uh, Mr. Ryan. Maybe it'll be a bigger deal now that there's a short Maybe. film uh, with his name on it. Um, uh, Rachel uh, Lears, uh, your film, uh, The New Fight for Voting Rights, uh, when, when you got this call from us saying we'd like uh, an idea from you, how did you pick that idea? Well, I actually pitched 10 ideas. Um, <laughs> because I really wanted to work on this project. And, um, and this one, uh, it was in the news at the time. We were, this was July. Um, North Carolina's law was in federal court at that time. It actually goes back to court. The voter ID portion of the law begins trial this Monday, the 25th. Um, so this is an ongoing uh, contentious issue in North Carolina and other states. And um, 
I really wanted to use this short format to get at the emotional core of what is a really complex, abstract, legal uh, battle that is going on. And um, I have a lot of family in North Carolina, and I, uh, for, for whatever reason, our, uh, my last film, which is set in New York City, circulated probably outside of New York City. Our biggest place where it circulated was North Carolina. Um, and so I, I had a lot of contacts there, uh, grassroots groups that had screened my own film, and I knew I'd be able to contact them to sort of get on the ground quickly to find out what people were doing, what exactly was going on, and what people were doing to fight um, to repeal this law, which basically makes it more difficult for people to vote. And it disproportionately affects minorities, students, young people, the elderly, low-income people of all stripes. So, um, you know, during this election season, I think it's really important to get outside the media horse race a little bit and just remember that, you know, there are 21 states that have passed restrictive voting laws since 2010. North Carolina's is one of the worst. And um, I really hope that the film can be part of the conversation about, you know, what it means to vote and what it means to make it more difficult for some people to vote. And we see just at the end of the clip uh, today the, the reverend in North Carolina who leads the Moral Mondays uh, and uh, uh, events and, and has been real outspoken on this. Yes, Reverend Barber. We were very fortunate to be able to film with him both an interview and a service at his church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, which is a really small town. I mean, he's a, he's a national figure, just an incredible speaker, um, but, but he still is based in this very small town in North Carolina and really committed to the community there. And... Um, so, so he is one of several voices in the film. We hear from, from people who are directly affected by the law, from people who witnessed others in their community in 2014 being unable to vote because of the new changes, from an elderly woman who has not been able to get voter ID despite a couple of years of effort because she was born in a rural area and doesn't have a birth certificate. And um, so there's just a whole, uh, I think the challenge with this piece was to really bring it back to the core and um, just you know, put in enough detail so that folks would understand what was going on without getting bogged down. Uh, so Razan, your film, uh, Limbo, have you ever had to make bail, Razan? Have you ever had to make bail yourself? I fortunately have never had to make bail. All right. yeah. so, um, yet. Yet. <laughs> uh, so talk, what drew you to that topic, since I guess you've never been through it yourself? Um, I actually read this article in The New Yorker about Cleef Browder. He was the guy who had the backpack and then like he was arrested and then was stuck in jail for two years and then, you know, it was very sad. He ended up killing himself because of what happened, but he was never charged or went to court for anything. I remember reading that article and being like, what? This is not real. This is happening. And then, you know, just sort of Tina Rosenberg wrote a follow-up article about it in the New York Times and I started looking into it and I just started wondering, like, who are these people? Like, what's going on? And um, sort of through that, I just became really interested in figuring out who the faces are behind the names and numbers of these people who are stuck effectively in limbo. Now, you filmed this in Maryland. How did you pick that? Oh, gosh. We just, I mean, it was like, a big part of the film is like all the characters are currently in limbo. So they're just, they're currently in jail. And a lot of the stuff that's done about bail are stories told by people after they've gotten out, which is like cool, but sort of makes it seem like it's a solved problem. Like, you don't see people currently in limbo. So what we did was just try really hard to find access to anybody in any jail around America that would let us in. And Maryland has a sort of progressive uh, bail system. 
so they were open to letting us come down, and that's kind of how we ended up going because they afforded us the most access. Uh, when you see the the full piece, um, uh, Razan interviews a uh, a warden at a jail whose name is Captain Merican. And he has a kind of surprising, uh, he, he, he has real perspective on, on this. Yeah, he's this like amazing guy who's like super large and like walks around with his badge and has a southern accent and like he's like literally like the whitest person you've ever met. And you're just like, I don't expect you to be so progressive about bail. And then you sit down with him and he's like, this is a terrible system. Bail is, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a mini bail. We should be doing risk assessments. And he's just kind of this like really refreshing voice from within the system that reminds you that not everybody in the system is bad. It's just sort of like contending with the actual bureaucracies at the like at power. Um, but yeah, Captain American is super super wonderful. His name again is Captain American. <laughs> uh, all right, let me uh, turn to uh, Sheldon Candice uh, with your film "Who Will uh, Survive in America." Uh, so we just saw the first uh, minute of it, but uh, Sheldon, take us through what happens in this film. Um, it, you know, for myself, <clears throat> every time that I see a tragedy in America, I get deeply saddened by it. Like, and I feel like for me, you know, it's just very important that, you know, this isn't a race issue. This isn't a class issue. This is a gun issue. And in the film, you know, I represent the every man, the every American person who's very concerned. And so I just literally, you know, when these tragedies keep happening, I'm like, well, I wonder if people really know how easy it is to acquire a gun based off of our laws. And I very quickly, as I would post something on Twitter or something, I'd immediately get attacked by certain people. I said, okay, Sheldon, you know, the best attack by uh, friends of yours or strangers? Tom, I don't think my friends are going to attack me, but um, no, but I think that, you know, what would happen is just the people who are very passionate about their right to bear arms, you know, I very quickly surmise that, you know what, it isn't my job to try to take anybody's gun from them or, or to go either way on the issue. My job is to basically pose the question, should it be this easy to acquire a gun in America? And so I just basically was like, okay, let's go through the process. And it's harder to get a driver's license than it is to acquire a gun. So you just basically show up at a gun shop, you take your driver's license, your vehicle registration. And you film yourself doing all this? Uh, yes, by hidden camera. Um, it's really cool. My DP put a GoPro camera on the top of his helmet, and he just basically stood beside me in the gun shop. Um, it's quite com compelling. I was very nervous the entire time. But and so literally, you take this 30-question test, and you can miss seven of the 30. And it's these very, like, simple kind of, you know, very, like, polarizing questions like, you know, should you run, jump, squat, or leap while holding a loaded firearm? True or false? <laughs> Anybody? Got an answer on that? Anybody? True or false? See, look, I heard some trues, I heard some false. You know, probably false, you know. Um, but you could answer that wrong and still get 23 right and walk out with a gun. Yeah, you know. I was a nerd in school. I always pride myself on making really good grades. And somehow missing seven out of 30, I don't think is that good. But, um, yeah, and so and then basically, so you go through this process. And you basically, you know, pass the test. And you can buy a gun right there in that moment. And the only thing that's really blocking is a 10-day prohibitive clause where they make sure 
you know, is this, should we give this person a gun? And then, so after I get the gun, I then go sit in society and I sit around many of you in your everyday life, in coffee shops, in schools, and at the very end of the film, I enter a church on a Sunday morning with a loaded firearm. So it's, it was very, very tough because, you know, my mother's a minister. And I think about, like, what is the overall statement? And I think that I feel good in myself because I never had any intent of harm. I just wanted to enlighten people's hearts and minds about the issue. Was that gun a line item in your budget for <laughs> the shirt? Um, Josh Sapin, AMC, uh, Marcus Lee, <laughs> Joyce Deep, Lisa Osborne, producer, thank you. Uh, in the line item, it's $652. <laughs> it is a six-hour P20 9-millimeter. It is officially for sale. I don't want it. Um, so I want to kind of throw this open uh, to the uh, group here. And in, in a few minutes, I'm going to open this up for questions. So uh, start thinking of them, and, and we'll get your microphone in a bit. Um, but I want to ask you about the, the, the short-form documentary, the kind of opportunities with short-form documentary, and some of the challenges of, of short-form documentary. You know, all of you have worked on uh, long-form films, and we love long-form films. Sundance Now Doc Club, we're filled with long-form films, and I'm a great uh, believer in that format. But short film, as I described before, you know, is doing something different uh, in the culture, but, uh, but it also comes with a certain set of challenges. You know, you're uh, uh, opening up these questions about uh, voting rights and, uh, and bail, and, and in five minutes, you have to convey a certain amount of information that maybe you'd normally have 90 minutes to convey. So talk to me about what your strategies were for making the most of short form. Anyone who wants to take that. You know, it was very difficult, actually. I think the, the first, you know, the first inclination is like, oh, five minutes, that's easy. You know, we make, you know, 90-minute, you know, 100-minute films. This will be refreshing because it won't take us two years uh, of our life to do it. But, uh, you know, that's the only um, thing that was good, that it didn't take two years. But it was very difficult because I think your first inclination is to try to take your skills as a storyteller and condense them, uh, take a, you know, take a 90-minute idea and squeeze it into five minutes, which is impossible. And you quickly learn that as you're, you know, uh, starting to, to put the story together. So then, so then I think you really have to, you know, pick your spots and what is it that you're trying to say in the short amount of time and what's, what is the audience um, going to respond to? So I think quickly, I, and uh, as from all the, the samples that I saw, it's, I think we all kind of gravitated towards the same thing, the emotional kind of, you know, takeaway, which is, you know, you want to be able to, you're not going to explain big topic issues in five minutes, you know, and, and it's, it's a disservice to, the, to any of these issues to try to boil it into five minutes. But I think you can get, you can kind of get the conversation started, which I think was the point of the whole uh, program. But it, but it was very difficult, and, and um, it was a great challenge, too. It was, it was a really nice um, way to, like, rethink how to tell stories. So I, I really appreciated the, ch the challenge of, of doing that. Um, you want to add anything to that? Good. I, I think did, I did good. you know it. Short film does not mean less work. Like I haven't. It takes you back to like film school when you're like putting your entire being into making your thesis film, and like you look up and you're like, "Good lord, I have no money. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. But I'm making this short film. I'm so passionate about." 
I would say that it's actually kind of a difference of degree rather than kind from making a feature. Because when you make a documentary feature, you've got, you know, hundreds of hours of footage and you got to bring it down to an hour and a half or, or what have you. And um, often what, what's, you know, the story and the context is, is much more complex than what will fit into even the long form format. So to me, it felt like kind of the same challenge in a, in a more microcosm kind of way. And, and the same solution, as, as we've all been saying, you know, it, uh, you know coming to, to the emotion of the story and, and the human side of how, um, how uh, this, this issue uh, affects people on a personal level. Rosanna, anything to add for your experience? I mean, I guess I, I really love short films. I think that I love, I love, love documentary feature films, but uh, they're often boring. And like, I don't want to sit through it all, but I will so sit through six minutes. That's my job, like, by the way. <laughs> I, mine too, it's mine too. But I mean, like, I will definitely watch a feature film about something I agree with or I'm already angry about, but I will definitely watch a five minute thing about something I don't know that much about. So that's kind of exciting to be given the opportunity to be like, here's a gateway drug to bail reform. Like, now go find something bigger or, you know, whatever it is. So, so in that sense, it was exciting because the big question for me was, like, what's the one thing I want the viewer to think at the end of it? And it's like, what? You know, and then you take the next step. So that was exciting, which is different than a feature where you're like, oh, we have to explain this. <laughs> I certainly had that experience watching all of your films that, uh, that I came away, you know, with a little bit more knowledge and a lot more curiosity to, um, to go researching these things. So uh, we want to hear from you. If you've got questions, raise your hand. We've got a microphone that will come to you so uh, we can get your question on tape. Don't be shy. Okay, we've got to bring the microphone to this young lady here. Um, are any of you interested in making a long form documentary from your short form one? Uh, great question. Lo lots of times short films do become springboards for, uh, for longer films. Is that occurred to any of you on, the, on these ones? Uh, Josh Sapin, Joyce Deep, Marcus Lee, <laughs> yes, we would all like to make these longer. I second that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, taking, you got one? Okay. Uh, we'll get you a microphone. Go ahead, we'll, we'll turn it up. Could you talk a little bit about funding and in how it's different for short films versus long format? Question about funding. Well, this was a particularly um, uh, unique example of, I mean, it's, it's, it's because it was commissioned, um, it, it's different from making uh, a feature where in general in the documentary world, um, it's pretty hard to get funding when all you have is a paragraph of an idea. Um, so you have to put in a significant amount of work and, and potentially a significant amount of shooting even before that funding comes through. So we were all very fortunate um, to be able to have kind of a, um, a minimal back and forth about these proposals and then actually receive funding to, to make them possible. And I, I can't speak to, to shorts in general besides that, but I, that's, that's not usually the way it is with independent films. <laughs> but, you know, I, I should take time to acknowledge that there is a lot more happening in, in short film documentary. As I said at the beginning, five years ago, you really couldn't do much with the, with the short film. 
Um, you know, I would point to New York Times Opdocs, which has been a real uh, leader in this area. They've now produced hundreds of, uh, of short film uh, documentaries. Uh, the New Yorker Presents, which is going to uh, unveil uh, its collection here at Sundance on Wednesday with a lot of great documentary filmmakers, including Eugene Jarecki, uh, the filmmaker I said who had uh, really given some inspiration to this. So um, there's a lot interesting happening in this space, and we're really excited to be a part of that. Um, Okay, uh, who else has got a question? I see a hand up over there, got a microphone. <coughs> With all the topics that <coughs> you've all encountered here and that's so important to America and to the world, <coughs> where do you see yourself going in terms of getting it out there? Some of these are political issues that politicians would be interested in. There's so much on the social media. So how do you take it to the next level? How do you take maybe young kids in school and have them learn about that. So I'm just curious if any of you had any ideas of what you do next. Well, with your talks. I, I'll, I'll let the filmmakers uh, chime in on this. And you know, th this is where Sundance Now Doc Club uh, and, and AMC Networks really hopes to bring its expertise of getting these shorts out uh, into the world as widely as possible. And we're right now talking to other partners uh, about doing that. And that's what we're going to be uh, spending our, our time doing. But but you know, probably most of you with your own films have experience of, uh, of, of doing outreach and doing that kind of engagement. So um, it would be great to hear from you as filmmakers how you see your role in bringing your films to an audience. I think it certainly helps to put Paul Ryan's name in the title of your film. <laughs> That's just for ours. But I think, um, you know, we, as, as Tom has mentioned, try to reach out with, with all of our work on social media, whether it's you know, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, and people have such short attention spans, and that's what's great about this format is these are easily digestible five-minute little nuggets to put out there and get the conversation going. Um, and I think, you know, what's, what's wonderful also about this initiative is we can kind of get past the usual suspects um, and maybe reach a broader audience. Um, yeah, I would add that uh, it, it's... When you make media about social justice, it's, it's always important to remember that it's not just going out there to this general public in some kind of vacuum. There are people that are devoting their lives all over the country to this particular issue. So I think all of us uh, have plans, and we've been talking about this with, um, with the marketing team, of, of connecting with the, the organizations and um, thought leaders that are that are already having these conversations in the public sphere, and so I really hope that the films can can tap into that and expand beyond it as well. And Rachel, can you talk about your experience with your film, The Hand That Feeds, which was about you know, immigrants uh, unionizing? And you mentioned before that in showing the film, North Carolina had been a real strong center for it. Can you elaborate on on what you were doing with that film? Yeah, so we actually did uh, a huge amount of. Um, audience engagement and outreach for my last film. Um, it came out in, in festivals in 2014. We did an independent theatrical in 2015. I've been working on that um, almost full time since then, myself and, and my husband, uh, who was my co-director on The Hand That Feeds, and I'd also like to acknowledge was a uh, producer and editor and sound on, on the new fight for voting rights. Um, so and your baby daddy? And my baby daddy, it's true. <laughs> You got it. <laughs> I, I would just add. So Don and Sheena aren't the only ones attempting this crazy. <laughs> um, so in any case, yeah, 
I mean, we really built up a, a grassroots network and, and tapped into grassroots networks that already existed, um, that were working on low-wage workers' rights and, and immigrants' rights. Um, and, and the film has really been embraced by the movement um, around the country, in addition to its sort of distribution life in through normal film channels. Um, there have been a ton of community screenings. And, um, and, and I think the short format really lends itself to that as well. Um, we had a New York Times op doc, and, uh, and we edited a 60-minute version or 56-minute version of that film, and a lot of groups have chosen to screen the shorter version because 84 is a long time. So I think with, this with these, uh, these shorts, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. You know, they can be shown in, uh, on somebody's phone, you know, they could, uh, just in a, in a conversation, you know, if it, if it comes up in, in any type of everyday situation, you know, you can just pull it up and say, hey, check this out. And, and really potentially move someone. I would say just really quickly, I think to answer your, to your question, I think the five minute format is, is really genius for the millennials because I'm, ba I'm banking that, you know, they're basically thinking AMC and Sundance Stock Club that, you know, you'll give five minutes of your time on your smartphone because it's so important to our lives, right? We use them so much towards a social issue. So I think that's really cool. That was really embedded in, in Josh's concept for take five. Um, all right, we have time for a couple more questions. Uh, people got them. Uh, raise your hand. I see a hand up in the back. We'll get you a microphone. So is there any concern with social media by generating these shorts that it might go too far? Um, because you mentioned something when you put the gun movie out. You got some reaction on Twitter. A lot of the social media today is, is hidden. And it can be violent, and it can be bullying. And is there, is there a cutoff that says, wow, how much should we really be throwing out there, or are we just looking for a reaction? I mean, a lot of the topics you've discussed today are everyday events. Can it go too far? Um, I just think it's our responsibility as artists to create a piece of art that starts a conversation. Um, I think that's our sole responsibility. In terms of things going too far, I mean, I think free will exists in the human condition, so I think people are gonna make those decisions and choices. Um, so yeah. I would, I would just add one thing. I would probably say that most of us as independent filmmakers, as, as um, anyone who has a, a particular opinion or point of view is used to being bullied. So I don't think it's going to be anything, you know, super new or, or challenging to handle. Um, I think if you're well, willing Sheena to... Well, Sheena and John, you made the film Atomic States of America, which is a, a pretty strong cautionary uh, tale about atomic energy right. uh, in America. That was, that was putting yourself into um, the, 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 the center point of a, of a controversial topic. What, what was that experience like? Uh, I'll tell you, I think it was, it was more intimidating for us making it. Um, and being at, at reactor sites and, and, and getting followed around um, and intimidated by, by plant security and things like that. Um, and we, we really were comfortable with the topic and, and, and proud of the work that we did and 
Um, I'll tell you, honestly, I think The Art of the Steel, which is a, a film that we made about um, the, the Barnes Foundation and a struggle for control over $30 billion worth of art, has been rougher for us in it's a in, room. That's in your hometown of Philadelphia. It's also in our backyard, which doesn't Super help. Super controversial. That clears a room. I can probably talk to more people about nuclear energy and get <laughs> less pissed off reactions um, than that film. But, you know, I think, I think if, we, if, you t if you tackle a topic... Um, that polarizes anyone, you're, you're, you're gonna get pushback and you just have to be willing to do that as an independent filmmaker. So uh, let me ask a final question to all of you. I'll start with you, Sheldon. You all started with a, a seed of an idea. You're interested in guns in America or you're interested in bail and, and uh, hopefully in the process of a documentary, you're learning something as you go. It's not just uh, an idea you started with. I wanna ask each of you, you know, what, were, what were the things that you were learning as part of this process about your topic? Um, I just want to interject before I answer that, that uh, a call to action to everyone in the room, if you can reach out on social media within this moment or immediately after, and just whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and just use the hashtag DocClubTake5 about this experience to start the fervor within society, that would be really, really helpful. Um, but to answer your question, I just realized how much you know, a lot of people think that capitalism, the word capitalism is in, you know, our constitution. And it's not. And as I, I was in that gun shop, I just saw how fast the business of selling guns was rolling over. I mean, they were just selling guns like it was literally like a McDonald's drive through And that was quite interesting to me to just understand that at the end of the day, the people who are selling the guns, there's no emotional connection to it at all. It's a business transaction. Yeah. Uh, Razan, uh, going down to these uh, jails, uh, wh what did you learn about the bail process? Uh, I, was, I was sort of amazed at how uh, much the people that worked at the jails cared about bail reform because it's something that doesn't require legislation to change. Judges can just start saying like, hey, for your bail, you need to write an essay about why what you did was wrong. Like that doesn't require anyone to pass a law. That's just like creating public energy around like the country and having like judges start saying, no, I'm not going to charge you like $100,000 for stealing a bag of chips from a bodega because you missed your last court date, um, which was really cool. But more importantly was like how enraged all of the guards and wardens and people were. Some, some obviously weren't, but a lot of people were. And I, w I was like so shocked because, because they're the ones who spend the most time with the inmates. And they're like, this guy is like a kitten. He's not going to do anything. He's going to come back for his court date, and that's it. And this guy's an alcoholic, and he drives without his license all the time, and he keeps getting arrested. They keep posting bail for him. And, and so it felt like really interesting for me to learn like there's this whole community going on and, and people people all want change, but there's just a lack of information about like what that change should be, which was really kind of nice and sweet. So uh, Rachel, going down to North Carolina and, uh, and talking to people about voting rights, what did you learn? Um, I think that um, I, I learned a, a lot about the deep history of uh, of what this struggle has meant to people over the generations um, in, in this country, and especially in the South. I mean, it's, I knew, obviously, about the Civil Rights Movement, but it was really interesting to learn um, more about uh, how it, Reconstruction, you know, the, uh, in, in 1870, the uh, 15th Amendment gave the vote to former slaves and prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, but, and, and there was actually this, this total, um, uh, 
complete change in, in which you know so there a huge amount of participation in the South among African Americans, and then there was a backlash, and that's what brought Jim Crow in. There wasn't just uh, this through line between um, the pre-Civil War era and Jim Crow. Then you have the Civil Rights Movement, uh, which brought in uh, you know the Voting Rights Act and everything. But there has been tension since then. And we're in a new era right now. I mean, I think I just didn't really know the extent of it. Um, and and that, that was really eye-opening for me to, to see just how far these laws are reaching across the country and how deeply they are, are affecting and have the potential to affect this, not just the presidential election, but um, state and local elections moving forward. And um, I think I really wanted to... Uh, you know, just focus on uh, not the, the platitudes of how, I, we all know voting is a fundamental right, but I think connecting it to that history really brings out a different side of it. I mean, people have fought and died and bled for this right, and we all need to take it seriously. Uh, Don and Sheena, uh, uh, following up with you, what did you learn from looking at poverty in America? You know, it, it wasn't so much a, a revelation. I, obviously, you know, we make documentaries, so we're used to not, you know, having a lot of money. Uh, but we're certainly not at the level of, you know, a lot of uh, worse off people uh, in, in our city. But I think, you know, it was for us, or for me anyway, there was, it, it was a confirmation of the, the disconnect that's happening with our government and kind of the policies that are, that are made and, 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 the, and the people that are really affected by these things. And, and I think that a lot of decisions get made with uh, a lot of top people talking to other top people. Uh, you know, the, the hearing, Tiana was the only person that was able to testify as a person living in poverty. The, the hearing, there was five days of, of hearing and testimony, all from people that ran social programs and things like that, which are really important because they're, you know, they're certainly, uh, you know, a step closer to the people that are on the ground. But you really need to hear from the people that are affected. And the fact that, like, that was a revelation to have, like, oh, yeah, we should get one poor person, which was not easy. It was a, it was a fight to get Tiana to testify. Um, and that's crazy, you know, and, that, and I think that, but that's confirmation, again, that we're so far removed from, you know, the, we always talk about the government, and we're always, you know, like it's the others, and, and we've lost sight that, that they are there to work for us, and, and you know, I think that was, it was more, it was pretty disheartening to hear uh, from the one person who's able, who, to, to tell her story was a powerful story, and to think that, like, she's being listened to, and maybe things would change. Sheena, have you had a chance to show Tiana the finished piece yet? We have not shown Tiana yet, no, no. And I, I'm really excited to do that. And her family could not have been more gracious or, or welcoming. And, and uh, you know, frankly, it's really brave of her to put herself out there like this. Um, just watching her testimony, she was scrutinized, and they tried to corner her and trap her in some of those questions, and she handled it all beautifully. And I have no doubt whatever um, feedback she gets from this, positive or, or negative, um, she'll handle with just as much grace, you know. But uh, as Don was saying, they call it the war on poverty, but they don't talk to anybody in the trenches. They don't talk to anybody on the front lines. So how can you win that war if you don't have access to those people? And it, it sounds so, you know, kind of silly and trite, but, like, the takeaway is just be a better person. And that's a lot harder to do in, in practice. 
Uh, let me finish up with some housekeeping notes. Uh, if you are interested in Sundance Now Doc Club, we've got some people in T-shirts out there. We'll sign you up for a uh, 30-day free trial. Uh, I think we've got some uh, coffee, courtesy of Doc Club, maybe some pastries uh, back there. <laughs> we'll be back here on uh, Wednesday at 1 o'clock for our conversation uh, documenting celebrity. Uh, and if you want one of these limited edition pins, pure nonfiction of, of my podcast that's coming up next month, come up and see me afterwards. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thanks especially to this thank great you. team of filmmakers.